We're beginning lesson three this morning of Old Testament survey, and uh, I wanted to quickly run through the three uh, tables at the end of lesson two, and just let me ask: Does does everyone have tables A, B, and C from the end of lesson two? I'm seeing heads shaking. No. You do have it. Okay. So apparently some people have it anyway. Uh, And we can work from the board here. And I think there's a... I think there's a... Oh, very good. Okay. Um, These charts uh, or tables A, B, and C are a very brief rundown of the history of the biblical period. And if we can get a simple outline of biblical history in our heads, then it will help us when we read individual books of the Bible. So let me just give a very fast uh, review of this history. And uh, in the charts, I try to give a column of uh, what's happening in the rest of the world so we get some context. We start out with creation at about 4174 B.C. And, uh, of course, uh, different chronologists will give a different date for creation, but that's a pretty uh, uh, pretty good date. And then the first 11 chapters of Genesis cover uh, this early period up to the flood. Chapter 12 of Genesis begins to speak about Abraham. So, in, right after the creation, we of course have uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, their act of disobedience, expulsion from the garden, and then events like uh, uh, Cain's murder of Abel. Uh, we have two lines uh, that come out of... Uh, Um, Adam and Eve's sons, one line, the line of Seth, appears to be the more godly line. The line of Cain appears to be the the line that's more oriented towards uh, life here on earth. And uh, there comes a period when the two lines begin to intermarry and uh, there's violence everywhere. And at that period... Uh, God uh, decides it's time to judge the world with the flood. Uh, By His grace, one man, Noah, uh, and his family are preserved. And then we have a period after Noah of his descendants coming up to the birth of Abraham. And then Abraham, his son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob, or two sons, Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob's twelve sons, uh, of whom the, the next to the last, I believe, is Joseph, are the main characters of the rest of the book of Genesis, and these characters are commonly called the patriarchs. Uh, at the end of uh, Genesis, we see, um, we see the 75 people who are descendants of uh, Jacob, who's now called Israel. Uh, They go into Egypt, where over a period of 400 years, they multiply so that 
when they come out uh, years later, actually 400 years later, uh, they now are a multitude of somewhere between two and three million people. Now, that takes us up to the birth of Moses, about 1527. And um, then the exodus from Egypt uh, takes place about 1445. Uh, some scholars want to date it two centuries later, but I think this is the best, uh, best view that we have. And uh, people come out, wander in the desert for 40 years because they refuse to enter the land uh, by faith in, and trust in God. So they wander for 40 years. Uh, the, the first campaign as they enter the promised land is at Jericho, about 1405 B.C., as you can see. And then uh, after the death of um, Joshua which is maybe, uh, I should say, the retirement of Joshua, which is maybe about 20 years later. Uh, we enter the period of the Judges, uh, 1388 down to uh, 1050. It's hard, really hard to uh, get good dates for this period. Uh, and at this time, Egypt is uh, sort of quiet. They're not doing much outside of their own borders. What's interesting is that we do have the last pharaoh, Merneptah, who had a, a small campaign in Palestine, and he left a, a monument which mentions the name of Israel. So uh, he, he talks about the people of Israel and uh, has left us a secular record of their presence in the, in the Promised Land. That brings us up into the period, uh, the last period of uh, the uh, Judges, and uh, we see some fairly disgraceful things happening during that period, uh, showing evidence that uh, Israel needs some kind of permanent leadership. Uh, Eli, the priest, uh, has two sons that are disgraceful in their ministry, and um, we're looking for a more spiritual, uh, godly-oriented leadership in this period. Uh, God raises up Samuel, who is, a, uh, who is a prophet and, and ministers as a priest. And um, he leads the people quite well during most of his uh, life, but towards his uh, later years, uh, the people are anxious about the fact that he's going to pass off the scene and then they're going to be right back in the same situation that they were during the period of the judges. That is to say, passing through you know, decades sometimes, of poor leadership. So they asked for a king. And um, Saul is selected. Uh, and we see that Saul is lacking some critical character elements in order to be a successful king. And uh, God removes his, uh, his rule and puts David in as the king. So that leads us up to uh, the period of David, his son Solomon. Uh, Saul, David, and Solomon are kings over all of Israel and Judah, a, a united kingdom. But uh, with the death of Solomon, a uh, new king comes to the throne, uh, which is Rehoboam, and he makes a very foolish uh, move. Uh, and he's requiring... Uh, 
a heavy burden from the people in terms of work, probably also taxation. And the people in the north decide they've had enough of building projects and taxes and so on and so forth, and the kingdom divides. So you see here in uh, table B, we have uh, a line of Judah, a line of Israel. In the middle, I placed uh, secular, uh, I shouldn't say secular, we have uh, elements from the rest of the ancient Near East. And we see the various kings of Judah and kings of Israel. Now, Jeroboam, the first in the north, in the northern kingdom, he set up uh, two centers of worship, one at Bethel, the other at Dan. And uh, these really were uh, um, eventually the, the undoing of Israel. But you can see uh, the kings here. I won't go into detail on this period. Uh, one of the major players uh, will be Damascus, uh, which now is a, a, a very extended city-state. And we begin to see rulers of that uh, kingdom uh, having more and more influence in events in Israel, especially Israel in the north, not so much Judah in the south. Now, uh, in that period, we have the prophets Elijah, and then uh, after the end of uh, Elijah's career, God raises up Elisha. And uh, it's interesting that in English, I get confused between Elijah and Elisha just because of the similarity of the names. Uh, not so much now, but uh, early on. Portuguese, they're very much similar. Ukrainian, they're very similar. It seems like every language, the two names are pretty similar, so it's hard to keep the two straight. Just want to call your attention to that for your own benefit. And uh, as we move down through in Damascus, we have this King Hazael, which uh, more and more uh, is interfering with politics in Israel. And we have another prophet, Joel. Then uh, we have a series in Damascus of Ben-Hadads. There's probably three. And uh, about 15 years ago, uh, at uh, excavations in Dan, there was recovered a monument by one of these Ben-Hadads, which talks about his wars with the house of David, or the dynasty of David, which is quite interesting. Now, again, extra-biblical confirmation of David. It's actually the, the, one of the first times that we see David mentioned uh, outside of the Bible. So it's very important for confirming that David was a historical figure. And, uh, okay, so then we move down through. Uh, we see more and more the presence of prophets. These are God's spokesmen to, number one, keep the kings on track, at least to attempt to do that. And number two, to call attention to the people that they need to be obedient to the covenant that God made with Israel. So we see, uh, for instance, Jonah. In Jonah's period, actually, Assyria was a major player. And Jonah has uh, a ministry against Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. Then we move down through. Uh, Amos and Hosea are prophets. Uh, and 
when we get down to, in the center here, Tiglath-Pileser, uh, Assyria now is the major uh, power in the ancient Near East. Uh, and they not only uh, challenge the northern kingdom directly, but now they're beginning to have an impact on uh, the southern kingdom as well. In the days of Isaiah and uh, the king Hezekiah, uh, the Assyrians actually were laying siege against Jerusalem. So, uh, a good deal of Isaiah's ministry is in uh, encouraging King Hezekiah, who was a good king, to be faithful to the Lord. And, um, and he does so. Uh, we see during this period the fall of Damascus, 732 in the north. Within ten years, Israel will fall in the north uh, at their capital in Samaria. So, uh, these are troubling times for people who lack faith and obedience in the Lord. Now, Hezekiah got an ultimatum from the king of Assyria to uh, surrender, and he took that letter, he laid it before the Lord in the temple, and God saw fit to preserve him. And uh, the the forces of the Assyrians... um, Something happened. We don't know specifically what happened, but many soldiers in their camp died and they returned home. And now, um, as I mentioned, the fall of Samaria in 722 and then a continuing line of kings in Judah and uh, more prophets, Nahum, Zephaniah, Jeremiah. Jeremiah comes, uh, brings us right up Till the fall of Jerusalem. So, uh, we have Josiah, who's a really good, faithful king. Uh, and Judah has a good deal of success, both economic and military, during his period. Uh, but Assyria, during this time, is beginning to wane a bit. And um, Egypt is just finding its legs after centuries of being very weak. And at the same time, Babylon is growing in power. So, Josiah uh, is concerned that um, Babylon and Egypt will become the major players. And it appears that he begins to side with Assyria, or at least help Assyria to prop up. So, uh, when uh, eventually we see the, the... the fall of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, uh, then uh, Josiah gets concerned. Uh, There comes a period when uh, the very existence of Assyria is challenged. Nineveh falls in 612. That was one of the major capitals. Next, Haran, which was an Assyrian capital, fell. And then in 609... Uh, the Assyrians now are reduced to just one major city, Carchemish, and the Babylons are laying siege against Carchemish, and the Egyptians uh, decide that they're going to come help Babylon crush Assyria. Josiah uh, goes out to meet the Egyptian army at Megiddo, and he's killed in the battle. And uh, 
Carchemish indeed does fall. So at this period, we begin to see Babylon as the major player. A few more kings. You see uh, prophets as well. Nahum, Zephaniah. Jeremiah has a ministry that extends over, as you can see, 56 years. Uh, Habakkuk probably is in this period. It's hard to date Habakkuk. And then uh, we come down to 608. 605 is when Daniel goes into exile. We actually have three or four exiles from Jerusalem. And Babylon came in 605 and took away some of the royal family. Daniel was among that group. And you can see that he had a ministry that extended over 75 years. He's probably quite an old man when, uh, when he passed off the scene later. Um, Egypt is not so strong during this period, but they, they want to always mess in uh, affairs in Palestine. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel is ministering to exiles that are down in Babylon. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel have a lot of messages that overlap. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. He's telling the people that God's going to judge Jerusalem for their history, long history of wickedness. Ezekiel down in Babylon is giving the exiles there the same message from the uh, exile point of view. Uh, the last, uh, uh, when, when uh, Josiah died in the battle of, uh, at Megiddo in 605, um, the Pharaoh went on to help out, I should say 609, Pharaoh went on to, to do battle at Carchemish. On his return, he put Jehoiahaz, uh, actually, no, I'm sorry, while he was in Carchemish, Egyptian king was in Carchemish, the people put Jehoahaz on the throne. When the Pharaoh returned, he took Jehoahaz down to Egypt and he placed Jehoiakim on the throne. You can see that he had a 10 or 11 year uh, period of reign. And then the Babylonians came because uh, Jehoiakim felt that he, there was some prospect for him to break away. So they come in 597... And uh, Jehoiakim dies at the end of that period. Jehoiachin now is the rightful heir to the throne. And the Babylonians take him down to Babylon where he's, he's in prison uh, until nearly the end of his life. And uh, what's interesting is we've uncovered ration tablets uh, for the rations that the king of Babylon gave to Jehoiachin and his... Uh, princes they cover about a 25 year period of time so again we have extra biblical confirmation of that Zedekiah is placed on the throne in Judah his name means the Lord is righteous and uh, Jeremiah makes a few uh, comments in his prophecies about how Zedekiah is not a very righteous king and so we must look forward to a future time when a real uh, king of righteousness will sit on the throne. At the end of this period, of course, we see the fall of Jerusalem and uh, more exile, uh, exiles go to Babylon. Uh, uh, Jedaliah is put as governor 
over Israel. We don't know how long, uh, I should say Judah. We don't know how long he reigned, probably about five years. And uh, there is a a group of uh, uh, zealous supporters of uh, the the Davidic dynasty that come and murder uh, Jedaliah and they grab Jeremiah and a bunch of other people and head down to Egypt. And so we have a, a growing presence of exiled Jews in Egypt. This will be important for us to understand later on. Down in Babylon, we've got more uh, kings. Um, Nabonidus comes to the throne uh, after the previous, the, uh, previous the evil Merodach is uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, later, Nabonidus comes to the throne, but he likes the weather down in, in uh, southern Arabia. And he goes down there and puts his son Belshazzar on the throne. And Belshazzar has, hasn't learned any of the lessons of his grandparent uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, as referring to the God of Israel. And so he's wiped off the scene by the Persians. Uh, and so now Persia becomes the major player. Follow Babylon 539 and uh, the Persian Empire now becomes the major player. The, the, the early uh, period of this rule, uh, Cyrus... Um, who's a Persian king, makes an edict that all peoples everywhere that have been exiled to Babylon or exiled to other parts of his kingdom can now go home if they want. So we see three or four waves of Jews returning to Israel. They all have the idea that, yes, now we can reinstitute the kingdom of God in the Holy Land. Okay? They get back there. We have the prophets Haggai and Zechariah that speak to that period. They go back. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the walls of the city. But when they look at the temple and a few of the older men, they sort of remember what the temple of Solomon looked like it's, it's kind of disappointing. You know, here we, we're reinstituting the kingdom of God, but it's nothing like the glory days of before. So, uh, during this period, uh, we have Ezra and Nehemiah ministering. And uh, the prophet Malachi, who's probably the last writer of the Old Testament period, uh, he ministers about 435. Uh, Nehemiah uh, makes a second trip back. He's governor for a while. And then we have a long period that we know very little about what happened. Uh, as you can see, 430 years from, the, from when Malachi writes until the birth of Christ. And then another 30 years until Christ begins to minister. So we've got a long period. We know very little we have the apocryphal books of First and Second Maccabees that speak about events in this period, um, and we have some incredible uh, secular historians that talk about world events. What's going on with Persia, for instance? Uh, as we get into 
the period around 400 or a little later, Persia starts uh, menacing the Greeks. All that does is cause them to pull together and they become uh, a force to be reckoned with. And in uh, 332, Alexander uh, the Great begins to move. Uh, over a period of seven or eight years, he conquers the entire known world. And uh, the problem is, when he dies, uh, his kingdom divides up into four um, minor kingdoms. Of those four, two really become prominent. Egypt under the Ptolemies and uh, Syria under the Seleucids. And they kind of battle it out during this period for control. Unfortunately, Egypt in the south and Syria in the north places Jerusalem right in the middle. So Jerusalem uh, suffers the, the pull from both sides. Uh, eventually, the Romans uh, gain prominence. And in 63 B.C., the Roman Empire controls Palestine. That brings us right up to the New Testament period and we see when Jesus comes on the scene, we've got uh, uh, Jews in religious control of Palestine, but the Romans are there with military and government control. So that helps us understand how we get to that period. Okay, are we ready to queue up um, lesson number three? And we won't get very far into uh, lesson number three this morning. But we can start off by, by talking about the books of the Bible and their names. Uh, first of all, the order of books. Um, and I'm not sure what handouts you have this morning, but I think you have uh, at least two figures uh, or two tables. One... Figure two is the version order of Old Testament books. Do you have that? Okay. Yeah, but they do have this this one. No. Okay. They have the third one, which is chronicle, chronological order, which is structure of the Pentateuch. Is that right? Okay. Uh, okay, well, I'll, I'll speak very uh, generally then about uh, the order of the Old Testament books. Um, first of all, the Old Testament was originally written in two languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. Not a whole lot of Aramaic, maybe a total of about 14 chapters. In the books of Daniel, we have seven, six or seven chapters, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then some isolated uh, verses. Aramaic was becoming the, the most commonly spoken language from the period of uh, the fall of Jerusalem onward. Uh, probably Jesus and his disciples spoke Aramaic. And it's interesting that God decided that when his people were now speaking another language, that he would communicate to them in a language that they could understand. Uh, good uh, material if you're a Bible translator and you're trying to explain to people why you're translating the Bible into uh, more readable forms. So, uh, the order of the books, uh, we will see that 
the Old Testament books were written over a period of about a thousand years. Uh, the five books of Moses uh, come in that early period, about 1400 uh, is the date of those books. And then we just saw that Malachi wrote at about 430, so pretty close to a thousand years there. And they wrote on uh, scrolls. Uh, that was the form of their literature. And a lot of people want to talk about the, the canonical order of the books of the Bible. Well, there really is no canonical order. Because in the early years, probably all of those books together were copied on, on rolls, maybe about 25 or 30 separate rolls. And they were stored in jars. So uh, there wasn't a specific order until a much later period when um, we, begin, we get into the book form. When you get everything grouped together in one book, now you can establish an order. Otherwise, they're just on separate rolls. However, they are in three major groupings. We already discussed the law. That's the five books of Moses. The prophets, uh, major and minor prophets, the, the former and the latter prophets, and then a third group called the writings. And the, the twelve minor prophets were probably written on a single scroll. If you put them all together, uh, it only comes up to maybe 30 or 40 chapters. The, the Pentateuch, that is the five books of Moses, were written on five scrolls because it's, very, it's a very long work. It is a single work, but it would have been very difficult to uh, write it all on one scroll. If you did, the scroll would be so long that it'd be really hard to do a sword drill. You know, uh, Let's turn to Deuteronomy 32. And there you are cranking your roll to come up to Deuteronomy uh, very, very difficult to manage. When the book form became popular, which was in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries A.D., then we could get uh, a, an order of books. But um, if we had the, uh, the section on the version order of the books, we'd see that uh, we have three different orders. We have the Hebrew order, which is to say once the, the Jews were able to record the Bible in book form, they had their order, which follows those three groupings we, we mentioned. Uh, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And then Septuagint was translated from the 3rd century to the 2nd century B.C. down in Egypt. And these were Greek-speaking Jews, and um, they had a different concept of how to um, put things in order, and their order is different. Then, about the 4th century A.D., um, when many of the Roman Empire Christians now were beginning to use the Bible, and they spoke Latin and not Greek, then uh, uh, Jerome made a copy into Latin 
uh, in a version we know as the Vulgate, which exercised great influence uh, on Roman Catholic Christianity up until about, actually about 1964. And um, the order in the Vulgate is slightly different. Let me just summarize uh, the differences. First of all, the Hebrew order versus the Greek Septuagint the Greeks joined the book of Ruth to the book called Joshua and Judges, uh, which has a certain logic because Ruth tells us in the very first sentence that uh, this is a book about things that happened during the period of the Judges. So why not stick it close to the book of Judges? Um, Ezra, Nehemiah, and First and Second Chronicles and Esther are joined to the, the former prophets in a group that's called history. And uh, that makes sense too. We actually have two versions of the history of Israel. The, the one version starts in Genesis. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then Joshua, Judges, and First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings. That takes us from creation up to the exile in Babylon. That's called the primary history. We have another series uh, which starts with First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and that's called the secondary history. A lot of overlap between the two, but the two histories, the books that make up those histories, actually have their own perspective. They don't contradict, but they give things from a different slant and uh, they're trying to bring out uh, different things that God was doing with His people through the years. Um, there are minor variations in the order of the minor prophets. Uh, that's not uh, significant. Uh, it's also true that in the Septuagint they moved Daniel from the group known as Writings over uh, close to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel who are the major prophets. And Daniel is grouped with major prophets. Then when we compare the Septuagint, or the Greek version, with the Latin Vulgate, uh, there are, are a few more uh, minor alterations in order. First, uh, the major prophets are moved to the head of the group called prophets. So the major prophets come first, then the minor prophets. Job, for some reason, uh, is now moved to the head of the group called Writings. And you, you'll recall that we said that in the one place in Luke that talks about the threefold division, it's, the division is um, uh, the, the law, the prophets, and Psalms. Because for the Jews... Psalms is the first book in that group called the Writings. Now in the Vulgate, Job has moved up to the beginning. Again, we don't really know why. Um, and then um, in the Vulgate, the order of minor prophets now follows the Jewish order rather than the Septuagint. So these aren't great radical changes. Uh, I think it's important to remember though that the order, there's nothing inspired about the order. These were decisions that people made 
through the centuries, and uh, it's to a certain degree somewhat arbitrary. Um, and when we move through this survey of the Old Testament, uh, I'm going to do something arbitrary as well. Not entirely arbitrary, but when we study the hi- history of Israel as we move through these books, I'm, I want to present the prophets in their proper chronological position. Uh, I like to do that because it'll help you to understand the message of the prophets if you can understand when it was that they're speaking. For instance, we've just been going through this excellent series on Malachi, and it's important to keep in mind that Malachi was writing after the Jews came back from exile in Babylon, and they needed to get their act together. And they are off base on, on five or six things that Malachi points out to them. So, we will follow as much as possible chronological order of the Old Testament books. The Psalms, Proverbs, and Wisdom books describe things that pertain to God's people in any age. So, we're going to study those as a group at the end uh, of our prophets section. Um, And actually, the Psalms and the Proverbs were collected uh, over a long, long period. The first psalm is, uh, that we can date was written by Moses. And the last one that we can date securely is Psalm 137, which talks about what happened when the Jews got down to Babylon, the exiled Jews. So again, we have this uh, period of almost a thousand years that's covered by the psalms. When we look at the dates of books, and, and we will talk about the dates of books, uh, not something that we should get overly um, um, focused on, but we should keep in mind uh, different dates relative to the writing of the book. First, uh, let's talk about historical books as the best example. Historical books talk about events things that God did in history relative to His people. So, when we look at an event, first of all, we'll talk about the date when the event took place. That's the first date. The second date is, when was this event recorded? And uh, I think that, in, for instance, the book of Moses, it's very clear that a lot of things that Moses wrote about happened hundreds of years before his time. So we have the event, then we have the, the time when it was recorded for us in, uh, in Scripture. And then um, we should look at the dates of the ministry of the author of the book. Because someone like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Daniel, they had a ministry that spanned 50, 60, 70 years And if you look at Daniel, for instance, you see some prophecies that were recorded very early in his ministry and others that were uh, recorded very late. So we need to look at the dates of uh, the ministry of the author of the book. And then finally, we need to look at the date of the writing or the final editing of the book. Isaiah had a long period of ministry and we have 66 chapters of individual messages that he preached. 
At some point, he put these all together in the form of the book as we have it now. So, we need to um, distinguish these four dates in order to avoid confusion. Jeremiah, for instance, the last 20 chapters, they're not in chronological order. He gives us dates, and they, they weren't intended to be in chronological order. He's dealing with themes. Uh, Ezekiel follows chronology, except he's got two messages about Egypt, and he puts those two together, and he's got two messages about Tyre. He puts those two together. So we got a couple messages that are out of chronological order. And um, in this final um, figure that you have, which you have the structure of the Pentateuch. Okay. Um, hopefully next time you'll have a figure called Chronological Order of the, of the Old Testament Books. Um, I'll save that until next week. We'll look at that next week. Uh, and we will see the, uh, the different dates of the books. And I think that's an important chart to kind of keep handy. Whenever you're reading an Old Testament book, try to locate it uh, in its chrono- chronological order. Now, uh, we probably have another uh, five or ten minutes. And I just want to talk about the chapters and verses. Uh, these also are not inspired. Uh, when Moses uh, took down the material that he received on Mount Sinai, he didn't write it with chapters and verses. Those came much, much later. It probably came along as a result of the fact that people now began to memorize and speak about these books of the Bible and they needed some framework in order to, to uh, cite these things. So, um, the chapter divisions were first added to the Vulgate in the 12th and 13th centuries A.D. So, chapter divisions actually come quite late. And uh, they were added by Stephen Langton, uh, who was uh, uh, British. And in a few places, his chapter divisions don't make sense. For instance, uh, Joshua 5.13 through chapter 6, verse 5 should form a a unit. And if you read them as a a unit, it answers some questions. Uh, Joshua meets the captain of the host of the army of the Lord. And and that's it at the end of chapter 5. But the first uh, first five verses of chapter 6 tell you what the captain told him. And, and it's important to keep those things together. So, we, we shouldn't give an absolute weight to the chapter divisions, uh, which doesn't mean we ignore them uh, entirely, but we, we kind of look at those with an open mind. They're not inspired in any way. Also, we can talk about the verse divisions. And the verse divisions uh, came at a later period. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, they were established by the Ben Asher family of scribes. And they put special accent marks at the end of each verse. 
So, uh, and that would have taken place about seventh, sixth or seventh century A.D. And then finally, the New Testament verse divisions were added by Robert Stephanus in 1551. And uh, probably anyone who studied the Bible, the New Testament for any length of time, knows that some of those verse divisions are quite arbitrary too. Sometimes you get a word at the end of one verse that you really think should go at the beginning of the next verse. So again, those are not inspired. If you compare the chapters and the verses between the uh, Septuagint and the Hebrew Bible, there's some differences. And if you, um, you will note in some of your Bible versions that either the verse numbers, especially in the Psalms, don't match up, or they're off by one. And the reason is, um, in the Psalms, a lot of the Psalms have titles. And we don't know if they were original or not. I think they probably were. They're part of the inspired text. But uh, sometimes those titles are given a verse number. Sometimes they're not. So if if one version gives it a number and the other one doesn't, then all the rest of the verses in that psalm are going to be off by one. And uh, also between the, the, the Septuagint and the Hebrew, there's a difference of psalm numbers because in the Septuagint um, Psalms 8 and 9 are combined into one psalm. So anything after 9 is going to be off by 1 in terms of the numbering. But later on, I think it's in uh, 78 and 79, the Septuagint splits a psalm uh, in two that's one in the Masoretic text or the Hebrew text. So, when you read the Psalms, you know, there's some complications. Um, but uh, for the rest, the, the differences are only minor. And I uh, just want to alert you to that, especially if you're, um, if you're using a Bible or you're looking at a Bible that uh, is in Roman Catholic tradition, the numbers are going to be following the Septuagint, whereas Protestant Bibles tend to follow the Hebrew text. And that explains why you have these differences. Okay, a few, a few moments for questions, if there are any. The Many will say that... Uh, the uh, apocryphal books are found as early as the Septuagint. And if you'll remember, I, I, I said that the Septuagint was a Greek translation done by Jews in Egypt from the 3rd to the uh, 2nd centuries B.C. And the reason that that claim is made is that the earliest manuscripts of the Septuagint uh, have apocryphal books. The problem is they don't, these manuscripts don't have the same apocryphal books, nor are they in the same order, nor are these apocryphal books ever a part of the Jewish canon. And uh, many felt for years, you know, in fact, centuries, uh, 
that uh, these should be canonical. Uh, but now, when now that we have a lot more material from uh, Qumran, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, we realize that um, the Jews didn't have an extra 14 books, which is the total of apocryphal books. They had they had tons of literature. We probably have another hundred pieces of literature that the Jews had in that period. And um, all of this to say that um, the, the apocryphal, books, apocryphal books never made up uh, any part of the Jewish canon, never were viewed as authoritative. And the real flack came after the Reformation period because... Uh, Luther and Calvin, the other reformers, were siding with Jerome, Jerome in the 4th century AD when he translated the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic texts into Latin. He didn't want to include those apocryphal books, but he did so under compulsion. And uh, there are a few things in the apocryphal books that are a, a, a split between Catholic theology in Protestant theology. Uh, The one major thing being uh, a reference in one of the books that would seem to support the idea of purgatory. And so, uh, and and even for Roman Catholics, the apocryphal books are not considered canonical until the Council of Trent, which I think is 1521 or, or they're about 1546, uh, sometime in the 16th century. And uh, Catholics even today refer to those as deuterocanonicals, which is to say they're not on the same level as canonical books. So I don't know if that answers your question. Any other questions? I thank you for your attention. See you again next week. <laughs>